This season of Just a Special is brought to you by Kids Crossing, a private foster care agency created by foster parents for foster parents. So Rachel, I say that arguably the most important decision to make when becoming a foster parent is choosing what agency you're going to go through. And why is that, Natasha? As a foster parent, you really have to rely on your foster care agency for support. My partner and I chose Kids Crossing, and we really have no regrets. What are some of those services that you and your partner used? Well, Kids Crossing provides many no-cost services, including therapy services for the kids, family therapy, family preservation services, foster parent support groups, trauma-informed parenting trainings, and much more. Kids Crossing even gave my partner and I a parenting coach, which was super helpful as we don't have any kids of our own. And where can people go to become a licensed foster parent through Kids Crossing? Kids Crossing has four locations across Colorado in Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more at kidscrossing.com and tell them just a special sent you. This episode is supported by Christina Whiteley, realtor with Fabulous Homes Colorado, powered by Keller Williams Freedom. So Rachel, we actually moved into a bigger home right before we started foster care to get more space, and we are sure glad we did. It's made a huge difference. Natasha, tell me about Fabulous Homes Colorado. Well, Fabulous Homes Colorado specializes in helping first-time homebuyers and veterans find the right fit for their families, from cute condos to luxury homes. What parts of Colorado do they serve? So they serve El Paso County, Woodland Park, and Pueblo. And what I've noticed most about Christina is that she truly cares about the community and not just with lip service. So if you want a realtor that truly values relationships over transactions, give Christina a call at 719-310-4347 and tell her just a special sent you. You can also learn more about Christina and Fabulous Homes Colorado on our website, justaspecial.com. Each office is independently owned and operated. I was a nurse before I became a therapist and then, you know, foster parent. At some point, I think I was surprised what brought up in me was that there was some unresolved things from, from my childhood that I was doing, right? I mean, all this caretaking kind of thing. <laughs> and that that perhaps was a strategy for me to avoid dealing with some of my own um, emotional pain. I mean, this taking in a foster child, it'll push you to grow. It either pushes you to grow or it crushes you, right? <laughs> and you just, it's really hard. Welcome to Just a Special, the place to learn more about foster care from diverse perspectives. I'm Natasha, a foster mom to a teen girl. And I'm Rachel, a mentor to kids in foster care. So I'm really excited about today's episode because we're interviewing the adoptive mom of a fan favorite, Maddie, who grew up in the system and was featured in episode one of Just a Special. Here's a clip for y'all to jog your memory of Maddie talking about her mom, Patty. She is the epitome of like selfless love and what taking in a foster kid should look like or taking in anyone like into your heart and your home. Like she's just a beautiful person. And I tested that relationship to no end. Like <laughs> I probably continue to test it in some ways unconsciously. Our relationship has never had to look a certain kind of way and just the healing that can come from that without any expectation, regardless of how I was treating her, regardless of how old I was. And I truly, 
I don't know what my life would look like if I didn't have that one person that stuck it out. (laughs) So Patty is an in-demand marriage and family therapist who specializes in the power of secure attachments. And during our conversation together, I almost felt like I was getting a private therapy session. She's just such a delight to talk to. And as I was going back through and editing the episode and hearing about our conversation back again, I just learned so much from it and actually changed some of my parenting strategies with Moon, the teen in care in our home. And so much so that Moon actually noticed that I changed the strategies. And I feel like our relationship is just a lot more strong than it was had I not ever talked to Patty. So it made a huge difference for me and I hope it does the same for you. And what's also really interesting about Maddie and Patty is that when they first met, Patty was actually a therapist for the same foster care agency Maddie was in. So her caseworker came to me and said, I have this this kid and she's doesn't like the therapist that she has now. And she wants to interview some therapist to see if it's a good fit. I'm thinking to myself already, I love this kid. Right. <laughs> and so, and I had seen her, you know, in, in our, in the lobby, you know, in the waiting room there at the child placement agency, I would walk through and every once in a while I'd walk through and I'd see her sitting there and she'd kind of have her bangs hanging down over her eyes. And I could see her kind of peering through at me and I, I knew who she was, right. And I'd kind of do a little quick smile. And so then eventually, uh, there was an appointment set up and, um, you know, I met with her and I was like, Oh, I hear you're here to, you know, kind of interview me and you've, you know, not been real happy with the the treatment you've had. And so, you know, I don't want to make those same mistakes, that kind of thing. And, um, she wouldn't talk. Oh, wow. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Not one, <laughs> nothing. So I'm sitting there with her in my office and, you know, I'm not, I I can't, I can't make a kid talk, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not going to get into a control battle about whether or not she can talk and I'm not going to get mad and upset about it. And I, and I know what she's doing, right? I mean, you know, she's, (laughs) she's testing me. And so I just told her, you know, I'm here. I'm ready to give my full attention to you any anytime you're ready. I'm just going to kind of work on some notes, but I'm I'm right here and I'm there for you when you're ready. And I think we had two or three sessions of that. <laughs> there was just nothing. Of just silence? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And then finally, finally she started talking to me. Yeah. So, it was it was a little intimidating. But what happened was I had always in session, asked Maddie to ask for what she needs instead of acting out. And she was in a group foster home at the time and thinking about her future and was she going to have a forever home, you know, and it didn't look like it was going to work out with the group home mom. And so she asked me if I would take her in. And I thought for a second and I said, well, let me think about that. I didn't just say no. And I told her I'd have to think about it. And 
and talk to people. And I didn't know if that would be allowed and I'd have to see if I can do that for myself. And, but I really appreciated the risk she took in asking me and that she was doing the thing (laughs) that I had always, you know, asked her to do. Right. Mm -hmm. So then we had to go to the, you know, executive director of the child placement agency and through the guardian litem and department of human services. And, you know, as you can imagine, some people had a a strange reaction to that because of what the rules are. So it's very unusual for a therapist to have adopted um, or taken in one of their kids that they work with. They tell therapists not to do that. Sometimes I think that's there more for (laughs) the protection of the professionals than it always is in the best interest of the child. We ask a lot of these kids Sometimes the professionals that are in their life are the only family that they have. And to then ask them to, okay, now you got to go emancipate and be in the world and, you know, not have a home to come home to. I mean, that's terrible. I mean, that's why the recidivism rate is as high as it is. And I'm conscious of the fact, too, as I say this, I worked with a lot of other foster kids and I would have loved to have taken all of them in my home, you know, so I'm just, I want to be conscious of that. If, if, a, if one of them is listening to this, um, that I would have taken you too, if I could have and I had the resources. So what were some of the struggles that you experienced in attaching with Maddie while she was a teenager? Yeah. <laughs> one minute she could be wise beyond her years and look very mature. And I think because of all the experiences she had been through, you know, experiences that she shouldn't have had at such a young age that made her more worldly than she should have been. Um, so one minute it would seem like I would be talking to a grown up, right? An adult. And, and then the next minute I, I, you know, it was hard for me to sort of shift sometimes and then see that all of a sudden, okay, no, here I am talking to a child who's really, who's really vulnerable. The other difficulties were um, times when we would have this like open, emotionally revealing, connecting, you know, soft, tender um, connection time. And then there would be blowback, right? I, I could, it, it's like, I, I know that's there. I've been trained in this. I know. But then when it would come, it would be so like, um, rattling, you know, and, um, and painful. <laughs> and I would have to remind myself it is because I'm getting closer, right? She is getting more attached, but those were hard. And I would be afraid of losing her. You know, I would, I would be afraid that she would get so scared about this or that she would, I don't know, run away. She never did, but, um, I was worried about that or I wouldn't ever see her again. Yeah. Everything that you said really resonated with me. Like inside, I was like, yes, yes. (laughs) I feel the same way. I feel the same way so many times. I'm glad to hear it's not just me. Not just you. Mm Mm-hmm. Not just you. And that's why it's so good to have somebody you can turn to to talk about these things, right? And then eventually, Maddie and I were able to, like, label it, right? Like, make sense of it. Like, I think initially at first, I 
I would get mad at her behavior, right? <laughs> and that's never very helpful, right? That just reinforces the, <laughs> the push and pull. Um, so then when we could, could name it, like, hey, I wonder, you know, if I notice there's these times when, you know, we get along pretty well, and then all of a sudden it seems like things go awry, and then I react this way to you, and then we get into this thing, right? I, I wonder what that's about. You know, have you noticed that pattern too? You know, and just to be able to, to name it, make sense of it, talk about it. So, and she could eventually name, yeah, I, I'm, I'm scared to get really close, scared of getting hurt, mm-hmm. scared of feeling that pain. Yeah, just out of curiosity, how long did that take? would you say, to be able to get to that point where she could name it? Because you are a lot of times having to overcome years and years, you know, of trauma and that pattern of like self-protection. Yeah, I would say years. (laughs) Um, I don't know what she would say be interesting. Um, Probably wasn't until she was mm, 26, 27. Okay. It was a while. It was a while. Yeah, this is a marathon and not a sprint, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, right. Totally. And so how were you able to kind of overcome that with Maddie, that push-pull? Being able to keep my emotional balance, which I, you know, obviously as a human being was not always able to do. Like sometimes it would feel really good and amazing. And then... The next time, I think because it felt too good for her and got scary, she would act out in some way. So I would have to, in those moments, really try to keep my emotional balance, not get triggered by it, not take it personally, but really try to tune into what's going on on the inside with her that she's not showing on the outside. Can you give an example of a time where you felt like Maddie was pushing away, but you were able to kind of hold that full picture of what's also going on in her inside? Because I think that can be hard for a lot of people. I know it's hard for me (laughs) with my foster teenagers. Sometimes I'm like, we just had such a great day yesterday. It's sort of like you're talking about where we all have this moment of really deep connection and she'll be really vulnerable. And then she'll actively be pushing me away like the next day. And that can be, it can almost feel like whiplash, I think, for the caregiver sometimes, right? You're like, wait, what? Like, I thought we were all the way over here. Now it seems like we took five steps back. But what you're saying is that doesn't mean you're taking five steps back. It means you actually took a step forward. Exactly. And that's really scary. Yeah, exactly. And that's just normal and it's okay. And um, I'm remembering a time when... She came home and I think she'd overheard a conversation with caseworkers or something where she came home and she was like, I I don't think it's a good idea that I live here anymore. I I don't think it's a good idea that I stay. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Wait a minute. We're getting along so good. What, what, what's going on? And at first she, you know, wouldn't, open up to me. And um, I just expressed my own pain or vulnerability around that in terms of that, you know, I wouldn't want her to do that. That would make me feel sad. She matters a lot to me. What's going on? And then she 
disclosed more openly what she had heard. And um, she was trying to protect me. I also think she was trying to protect herself in a way because if if this was hard on me, then it would only be a matter of time when I would abandon mm-hmm. her. You know, it's mm-hmm. the push-pull, right? But when I said to her, you know, I'm an adult. <laughs> I can handle this. I know... I know what's going on here. I'm good with it. I don't want somebody else to make a decision for us. We get to make that decision for us, and I want you to stay. And if I have some difficulty, I will talk to you about it so we can work it out. That's such a beautiful moment because I think some people would be like, what do you mean you don't want to live here, right? Yeah. Like, I, I put so much effort in. Like, what more do you want from me? Like, you think it's going to be better somewhere else? But just to be vulnerable. I'm glad you brought that up, too, because I think vulnerability is a huge piece of creating a secure attachment, it sounds like. Absolutely, because vulnerability creates safety. Yeah, I could have gotten all triggered and and got all anxious and, you know, or take a deep breath, right? Get curious, uh, keep my balance and tune into my own emotional vulnerability and share it with her and try to tune into hers. Mm. So how are you able to do that in a healthy way to be vulnerable and share enough to create that safety, but then to also not be parentifying a foster child? Because I know a lot of times like they were responsible for maybe their parents' emotional health beforehand, or they were put in roles where they were parenting their parents. So how do you kind of balance that all out? Yeah, I think that's a great question. That's a really good question. Well, when, when you get triggered as a foster parent, or parent, right, um, to be able to tune into yourself and figure out what is the the emotions that are going on in terms of is there fear of failing as a parent, fear of letting the kid down, fear that you don't understand the kid. I mean what what is the emotions that are there? And to be able to to name them in a way that, you know, is like it scares me if you you're gonna go out and, you know, smoke pot, not because, you know, I want to control you or tell you what to do, but I I don't want you to get hurt. And I feel really sad about that. You know, not that I can't handle my own feelings. I have lots of other adults I go to, right? You know, kids have to know that there are other adults around that a parent can turn to for, for comfort and care. And they need to know that, you know, they're not responsible She's not responsible for my feelings, but I do have feelings, right? I don't expect her to take care of them. I just want her to know about them in relation to how important she is to me. Natasha, what struck me in your conversation with Patty here was when she said, it's important for kids in care to know your feelings, but to not hold your feelings. Right, Rachel. And what I loved here, too, is how Patty really gave us a framework for how to do that. And it's in framing all of our feelings central to the kid, which lets them know how important they are to us, that they're lovable, that we care about them 
So when you do X, you know, I'm worried about you. Or when you do Y, then it hurts me because I really love you and I want what's best for you. Now, Natasha, as a foster parent and also having your home open to respite care, how do you see that play out in your life? That's a really, really great question, Rachel. And what I found to be the best way for me to remain open and vulnerable with the kids in my home is to be curious and not assume. So, you know, if something is said that's not very nice or not in the nicest tone to not assume that that's going to be the tone for the day or even that harm was meant by that or that was meant to even be hurtful. And that's something that Patty and I actually talked about a lot as well is the importance of remaining curious as a foster parent and how that's a huge, huge piece of attunement and healthy attachment. I think anytime you notice yourself already assuming what's going on for the child, right? Because we, I mean, sometimes our assumptions are right, um, but we can be off. I, don't know, I thought I read somewhere once about 50% of the time. So, you know, if, if you're not curious and you assume that what you think is right, and a lot of times... <laughs> We're, we think we're 100% right, we're, you know, we feel that, then you're reacting and relating to the child based on your own thoughts, and you're not attuned to the child, right? And um, to be able to be curious, <laughs> kids who've grown up in families where there wasn't a lot of attunement, right? <laughs> it's powerful to to stay still with yourself and emotionally regulate and be curious and just give a child your full attention, soft face, soft eyes, you know, try to ask questions, not in a demanding, angry way, but out of a curiosity kind of way. That power, you know, I mean, we all love it when somebody gives us their full attention. That tells us we're, we matter right? We're worthy of someone's full attention. They're interested in us. They want to understand me. They want to know me, even in my painful places, even in my places that I don't feel so good about myself, right? Um, That's that connection that's just so important where you can get focused on more about attuning to the emotional needs underneath than getting wrapped up in the behavior, Yeah. Is there an example that comes to mind um, with Maddie of a time where you felt like that really helps your curiosity and you were able to just see one of her behaviors in a totally different light than maybe you had assumed? Yeah. Going to school. So, you know, I, I could start thinking like, oh, is there a attention problem here, learning disability or, um, you know, analyzing, right? Is there trauma? Is is this just, um, she's not motivated, right? I could spin off into that kind of a kind of thought process versus being really curious about, you know, why aren't you going to school? Or I, I know you're smart, you can do this work, I've seen you do it. Um, what's going on? Um, and then what I found out was in just being curious and being with and sort of allowing her to do the behavior, even though it was, you know, upsetting and challenging, 
that eventually she opened up and shared with me that she was really afraid of failing. So children's behavior, all people's behavior, Sue Johnson, who is um, developer of emotionally focused therapy and who is that type of therapy is what I use a lot. She has the sprays where, you know, all behaviors that look dysfunctional have good reasons behind them. And so the reason behind this was to protect herself from feeling the pain of failing. I mean, think about it. If you put everything you've got out right, and try to do your best and you fail, then what? Right? It's very emotionally painful. And if you've already, you know, been been given up as a child, right? You already have this shame about who you are and if you're lovable and how adequate and all that kind of thing. It, it's really about avoiding pain. And so when, as a parent, you can listen to that, hear that, not try to fix it or dismiss it or minimize it, but just, just be with it and let it pull at your heartstrings and move you emotionally so that she gets a sense of feeling felt and that I feel her pain with her and I'm there and that no matter what, we'll get through it. I'd help her. You know, then things start to shift. And I kept telling her along the way, instead of getting frustrated about it, because I, I knew she'd go back to college, right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't get into a big battle with her about it. I'd just say, you know, it's, it's okay. You're not ready yet. I know, you, you know, it's okay. You'll go when you're ready. I just gave her the message that I had faith she'd figure it out. And she did. Yeah, and she got her master's as well, which yeah. is really amazing. So she figured it out and then she leveled up. I know. Yeah. I know. I'm so proud of her. It's just amazing. Yeah. That is so beautiful because you're coming alongside somebody and giving them support to make the decisions that they need to make for themselves instead of trying to, like you said, fix things, right? And I think mm-hmm. too with foster care, like that can be super triggering for kids, especially when they don't really have the, they don't really have a say of even being in your own home. <laughs> so a lot of times yeah. the attitude can be like, who are you to tell me what to do? And frankly, that's that's valid, right? It's like you're a random person. Yeah. So I really like that of just kind of being like, I'm here, I'm a support for you, but I know you're going to figure this out. And I'm here for whatever you need right? to kind of get there. Right. I so appreciate what you're saying about the sort of controlling, trying to get get somebody to do something, right? I mean, none of us like to be told what to do, first of all, as human beings. Mm-hmm. We just don't like that. Mm-hmm. And then if you're working with teenagers or kids and you start telling them what to do and there has been a history of trauma, neglect, you know, chaos, abuse in the home. Um, You're bumping smack into the child's survival mechanism because how kids survive in that, because they, they have to survive by thinking that they have more power and control than they do because mm, <laughs> otherwise mm-hmm. the powerlessness would just do them in. Mm. And so you hear the phrase like magical thinking, you know, a lot of times kids think things happen in the home because of them, 
And Maddie has described this to me that it took her a long time to realize that she liked to think of herself as having more control and power than what she actually ever did. You're really bumping into a survival mechanism. And that's why it's so important to be curious and not get frustrated by the the rebelliousness. Yeah, I really love what you're saying because so many things are clicking into place for me just as I look back at situations that have happened even in my own home. Mm-hmm. Because I did realize for my foster kid that that was true, like control is really important and it's a trigger. But I yeah. thought that was more maybe for her. I didn't realize this for like every kid. And I guess I found that it really takes a lot more time. So like when I have to ask her to do something, if I explain why, mm-hmm. it goes a lot better. Not just like, oh, I'm telling you this because I'm just right. telling you, but like, hey, can you floss your teeth? Because, you know, the dentist said, if you don't, <laughs> this is what will happen. And I'm not trying to control you, but I want to save you from the future pain of this. Like, you know, it's not going to go away. It'll just get worse. Stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not, I'm trying to control you or tell you what to do. I can think of an example with Maddie in terms of trying to get her to do dishes around Mm. the house. It took me a while to to finally figure out that that dynamic was was there playing out. And um, I could either make it about me and its impact on me or take it personally or keep trying to to get her to do things. And finally, I just, you know, would turn to my husband for emotional support, but then I would just kind of do the chores. And then lo and behold, over time, she would start coming up and asking me if I wanted help Mm. or she would just start pitching in, right? (laughs) When I took the control battle away and I focused more on the relationship because it was starting to cause too much conflict, right? And, And to me, the most important thing is focus on the relationship, not the behavior, right? And then once you have the relationship built, then she'll come alongside. Yeah, I can see that being really powerful, but not the first thing that comes to mind of like how to address the situation. It can be hard and it's hard too, especially when you've had a long day and the dishes are there and you're like, why can't you just do the dishes? Yeah. And I've heard too that once you start seeing a child for their behavior and not a child as someone who's just trying to survive, the relationship pretty much is over and it's really hard to backpedal and see the child as a child again. And, you know, it's destructive to the point that it becomes toxic or unhealthy for the child to be living there in that home. Yeah. So I imagine too, with COVID and people spending more time together than they would otherwise, like, you know, a lot of schools aren't full time. Uh Do you have any advice for people who might be in that situation where they're like, I'm so frustrated. I've been frustrated for a while. How do I kind of take a step back again and look at this child in my home as you know, someone who is just doing their best and trying to survive. Getting support from other people who, who've been through this, you know, therapists, caseworkers, other parents, foster parents, um, normalizing it as much as possible, making sure you have some way to, to recharge yourself. Um, and then getting aware of when, when you're getting triggered 
you know, and, and your own impulses when you get triggered. I mean, I was a nurse before I became a therapist and then, you know, foster parent. So, yeah, there was, I had to, at some point, I think I was surprised what brought up in me was that there was some unresolved things from, from my childhood that I was doing. I mean, all this caretaking kind of thing. <laughs> and that that perhaps was a strategy for me to avoid dealing with some of my own um, emotional pain. And so people have to really kind of get aware of themselves. I mean, this taking in a foster child, it'll push you to grow. It either pushes you to grow or <laughs> crushes you, right? <laughs> just... <laughs> It's really hard. And the more you know yourself, the more you have flexibility and not such rigid responses to things. Noticing your body sensations when you are triggered is key, right? A lot of us are not aware, right, of our body sensations at all. We just know that the dishes are in the sink and we feel bad and we want to quickly, right, like, complain you know about the other person versus kind of hitting that pause and going inward and feeling the body sensation and noticing what you want to do and what are the the softer emotions or the vulnerability behind the the frustration and the anger right so that then maybe you can turn it around and and reach out and you know talk to your teenager around hey you know this is a hard time for you right now it's a really hard time for all of us and I need your your help I need your support and it would mean a lot to me if you can you know help me with the dishes when when the time is right with you for you but before you go to bed right (laughs) (laughs) no giving giving choice I think is really powerful and I don't know. I didn't personally, I didn't grow up in an emotionally vulnerable family at all. So like, I know this stuff was like super foreign to me and my partner did. So he kind of intuitively gets this, like if we're more vulnerable with our foster teen, you know, she's not going to throw it back in our faces, Yeah. you know, but like my fear at the beginning was like, why, why would I tell her how I feel? You know, she can use that against me and weaponize it. And unfortunately that's how some families are. But I think you know, it's so true that these kids, they do want to be loved, like you were saying at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And for people who might be hearing that and being like, why would I be that vulnerable? I, In my own home, I've seen that's what gets things done is that vulnerability. And it's it's not weaponized. Yes, yes. Because as you think about to be vulnerable, I like what you say about this risk, right? To be weaponized. Kids will recognize that vulnerability, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And and there's safety in vulnerability, right? Because if you're mad, like say, for example, your child runs out in front of a car, you're going to yell and look mad, but on the inside, you're really scared, mm-hmm. right? There's always another show in town. So if we're only displaying what's on the outside all the time, and we're not revealing and taking emotional risks, to talk about our own vulnerability and how we're touched. That's where the safety lies, especially with kids who've been traumatized. Because you think about it, right? (laughs) Um, They have to make sense of their environment. 
we have to name what's going on. We have to name everything that's happening internally and make sense of it for safety. So if I've gotten impatient and snippy, you know, with Maddie, um, and it came out of the blue, I need to go back, right? I need to go back and say, hey, you know, I was hungry and tired and stressed about, you know, this thing. And, you know, I'm sorry, but I, I just snapped at you. You didn't do anything wrong. Natasha, I really appreciated that you and Patty took the time to talk about triggers because I really think that it's not a matter of if it's going to happen. It's really a matter of when those triggers are going to happen. What I really liked is how Patty defined a trigger in a foster parent. And she said, a trigger is really just a reveal of unfinished business from your own past that you're projecting onto the child or children in your home. And that really struck home with me too. And she and I also talked about the importance of learning how to take a pause and really feel a trigger in your body and acknowledge it so you can move through it in a healthy way. That has to be very relevant in your life, having a teen in care in your home. Absolutely, Rachel. This is something I think about every single day. It's something that is at the forefront of my mind because I know if I blow up at Moon, even just one time, that's going to destroy a lot of the trust that we've worked so hard to build up together. And that's something that honestly, she doesn't deserve either. So with Moon, the foster team in my home, something that I found is really effective is when I am triggered by something she says that's not very nice, is using humor as a way to address that. Now, I do want to just point out that, you know, you and Moon use humor because I think that she really responds to the humor and she'll understand what you're saying, um, kind of like absorb what you're saying and say, oh, okay, maybe that was a little too far. So it might not work for everyone, but I do think that, yeah, that's a great tool for you too. Yes. Humor works really well for Moon and I because it really helps deescalate the situation instead of it turning into a power struggle. So now the light's on. You're triggered. What happens next? Right. So if I have a reserve, I'm able to decide, am I going to get angry about this? Or can I just like make a quick joke so that she knows like, hey, that probably wasn't the best thing to do or say. And we move on from it. And if I don't have a reserve, I'm going to have to wait until I'm calm to have a conversation with her and be like, hey, I felt disrespected in that moment when this or that happened. And Going back to the importance of having a reserve, um, Patty and I also talked about how important therapy is to make sure that we're working on our own unfinished business from our childhoods as the foster parents. And that's something I take really seriously as well. I go to therapy. And Patty and I also talked about, too, the importance of therapy for two-parent foster families and single-parent foster families. And this also comes from our own experience as well as Patty was a newlywed when Maddie first moved in with her and her husband. And so Patty and I talked about the importance of having a really strong foundation as a family before you bring any foster kids into your home. You want a couple to be really shored up. You want each partner to understand their own strategies of how they manage stress, right? Usually one person has a tendency to if they're under stress, avoid their own vulnerable feelings, kind of shut down, withdraw, um, or maybe, you know, get angry. Um, and, and then there might be the other partner who has a tendency to 
tune into some of their emotions, but it's kind of more like venting, complaining, criticizing, which can be kind of overwhelming for the other person who's trying to dampen down emotion. And they can get into a pattern of kind of a, <laughs> a criticize, withdraw, or, you know, shut down, demand kind of pattern. And when you take a child that you, especially a child that you don't know, and you don't know their history and their background, and you bring them into your home, these things are going to happen. Triggers are going to happen. And couples really need to understand that cycle that they get into because you don't, you don't want them to now have that stress their relationship. Being able to talk about sort of the cycle or the dance you're seeing, hey, I notice, you know, when you do this, then I do that. And then when I do this, this happens. And then we're, we're off into a, you know, a rocky moment of some kind, right? And I know that's not sort of who you are or what, it just helped me understand something more is going on here. Let's all sit down and talk about it. You want them to be able to turn to each other for support and to be able to ask for it. Not very many people can turn to their partner and say, I am really struggling right now. I feel like a total failure as a parent. Everything I try to do doesn't work. Um, I can't get through to this kid. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And, you know, I need emotional support. I need your love. I need a hug. I need you to just be still with me and present and understanding Sometimes what can happen is somebody might try to reach in that way and then the other partner, because it triggers their own insecurities about how they feel things are going with the child, then they might go, oh, it's not that bad or all we got to do is this, right? Try to fix it or, mm -hmm. you know, minimize it in some way instead of really connecting emotionally. We're so thankful for our community of supporters that makes Just a Special possible. This season of Just a Special is brought to you by Kids Crossing, a private foster care agency created by foster parents for foster parents. So Rachel, as you know, my partner and I started becoming licensed to foster parent through our county and then switched to Kids Crossing. Natasha, how did both of those experiences compare? Well, I'm really amazed at all the additional supports Kids Crossing has provided us with, including a home coordinator. So our home coordinator is our first point of contact whenever we need anything, and she's always available and always on top of it. And she's also helped us really navigate our placements team, which can get confusing when there's so many people involved. And she'll even help us decide next steps when we're unsure of what's best for the kid in our home. And where can people go to become a licensed foster parent through Kids Crossing? Kids Crossing has four locations across Colorado in Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more at kidscrossing.com and tell them Just a Special sent you. What are some ways that families can resolve conflict around foster care? Well, and... Certainly, there are so many times I think back and I, I cringe when I think about how I reacted to Maddie, right, that I don't feel very proud of. Um, but what the main thing is, is that you can repair, right? I mean, we're never going to be perfect. We're never going to, I mean, we could grow and grow and grow, right, in terms mm -hmm. of our own emotional, psychological health, right, which is also great in and of itself, that there's always room to grow, right? There's no end point. Um, but to be able to, 
to, to repair. That's what's really powerful, you know, is, is when there's been a misattunement and you didn't respond in the way that was in the best needs of the child, but more responded more because it made you feel better to respond the way you did, right? That to be able to go back and articulate that, make sense of that for for the child and own it. I mean, these are powerful things, right? This is what creates that trust and sense of safety and security because you got to make sense of your world. You got to feel safe first before you can be secure. Is there a memory that comes to mind with you and Maddie of a time that you felt like you had a big repair? Oh boy, there's got there's got to have been many. I'm sure. Um, let's see. Yeah, it's so funny because it has to do with um, you know, Spike is in the podcast. She talked about blowing up a microwave, but this has to talk about a cookie sheet that was in the oven. It must be mm-hmm. something with ovens and heat with her. But. That's funny. <laughs> she had left a uh, dirty cookie sheet in the oven and I had like preheated it on boiler or something and then, you know, come in and it was all smoky and nasty. And, you know, I just, I just lost it. Right. You know, like I just like, you never listen to me. How many times do I have to tell you? <laughs> you, you don't think about anybody else. You don't even care. You know, I, was, and I walked out, I walked out of the house, stormed out of the house and went for a long walk. And, um, my husband told me later she was really worried that it really scared her. And um, I felt really bad about that. So I had to go back and say, hey, you know, that was not okay. <laughs> the way I acted, I'm really sorry. And, you know, I was already under a lot of stress and um, not feeling very well at the time. And you didn't deserve that. And, you know, so, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And that is so powerful too, because it's interesting when I was talking to Maddie, because I think when you resolve those moments, the moment of her, of you yelling at her is not what stuck, it seemed, when she was talking about her time with you. It's those moments of that love and attunement. Exactly. So it seems like if you're able to readdress that, then that's what's going to stick is the moment of you saying like, I'm sorry. And I think too, you know, we're not perfect. That's right. And we don't want to be perfect. We don't want to model that because we don't want them to be that because it's impossible. Right. It's impossible. And also, this also gives them a roadmap for when they mess up what they can do. Right. Totally. Because that's, that's going to happen. And then also too, that can help the attachment, I would imagine as well, because an attachment doesn't mean a perfect relationship. Yeah. And that's what's so powerful for these kids who've grown up in families where, you know, they didn't get the experience that people could be mad at each other or there was anger and it was still safe and it was going to be okay. Right. Mm -hmm. It was made Mm -hmm. sense of. Um, Instead, if there was anger, that meant danger. Somebody's going to hit anger is bad. And then all of a sudden they get this idea that all anger is bad. Right. And no, anger is a a normal emotion and we have to be able to be angry and express it sometimes. But so to be able to come back and repair it and make sense of it. Right. That is I love what you said that that gives a map right of how we could how we should be and what's normal and that it's okay. Like I've had couples that, that 
come in and um, it's very interesting. There's not a lot of engagement because they're so afraid. They, they've been brought up with this idea that anger is bad. You're not supposed to be angry. If you get angry at all, that's bad. And then so if somebody gets a little angry, they get judged for being bad, like that they shouldn't be angry. And then there becomes this sort of um, tentativeness all the time, protectiveness, and then not real authentic emotional connection with each other. And so to even before the child comes in the home and you have two people, there's always kind of unfinished business that we all have. I don't care how perfect, quote, perfect your childhood was growing up that is coming into play. Like those old ghosts are haunting around the relationship. And if you don't make sense of those and how those play out, you'll get into some repetitive patterns of distress and then it gets more rigid more reactive like kindling and and then you it gets set off easier and so to be able to make a lot of sense of that right (laughs) is really really important yeah and i would imagine a big piece of that too is like a humbleness right because some people might have a hard time being like yeah i really screwed up yeah Mm -hmm. but that's so essential i think in this because you you are going to screw up a lot. Like you just are, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And there's no shame in that. Um, and I think, um, speaking of shame, because shame is a big thing that goes along with kids who've been abandoned or abused or traumatized. Right. Um, that it's so anti-shaming, right? Like to be able to say, I make mistakes too. And you know, it's okay. Yeah. You made a bad choice, but you're not a bad person. You're not broken because you struggle with this. And I think so many of these kids who who grew up in families where, you know, parents would all of a sudden, you know, wail on them or um, hit them, do things that, and, and then didn't make sense of what was going on or come back even and own it, repair it, go get it taken care of with a professional, right, or or even if it wasn't about hitting an abuse per se, but if you grow up in an environment where a parent is, you know, getting on you, but they don't come back and sort of make sense of it for the child, you know, um, that it's not that there's something wrong with them. It's behavior they didn't like. And, and, you know, mommy or daddy um, yelled too much. So if you can't make sense of it, and come back and sort of repair the shame of it, what happens is it's almost like the kids become the shame. <laughs> and so then it's very challenging to, to form a connection or attachment with the kid because they just feel so bad and broken. They don't deserve your care, your love, and they're going to push you away. I've heard that kids see lacking in their caregivers as a lacking in themselves. Ooh, that's a cool phrase. Yeah. And I think that sort of makes sense because biologically, you know, if your parent gets really angry as a child, you can't really afford to be scared of them because they're your caregiver. So you can't really, you know, just like run and leave, you know, when you're five. Mm -hmm. So then you interpret that as something that's wrong with you. Right. Because then that, that gives you the logic to stay. Which gets back to what we, we talked about earlier with the control and the magical thinking, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's the same 
same kind of dynamic. And, um, and there can be shame there too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, these kids have so much shame. You know, if you've been abandoned, abused, neglected, traumatized, um, parents who were alcoholics that did embarrassing things, I mean, in front of other people, I mean, it's just, yeah, shame is, shame is really painful. What are some of the ways you think you were able to help Maddie kind of, I guess, see the reality of things, but also overcome some shame? If I'm tuned in, I'm not always tuned in, right? If I was tuned in and I could pick up that there was shame there, to be able to access the other vulnerability around it, it's kind of hard to describe because shame can be a, a wall or a block to connection. So if somebody's in shame, um, I mean, neurobiologically, the emotion of shame serves for us to hide, right? To not do the thing we do that we're going to get rejected or shamed for. So it makes us go inward, which makes it harder to connect. The thing we know in, in like emotion research and science is that there's always another emotion there that binds with shame, that maybe there's some sadness there or fear, um, some kind of emotional pain. And to be able to, to try to tune into that and access that um, is important. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. What are some of the things that surprised you along your journey of becoming family with Maddie? It was probably more than what I thought it was going to be in terms of uh, the amount of challenge. <laughs> You know, um, but it was probably good that I didn't know that. I don't know if I would have done it. Um, and I'm so glad I did. It was worth all of it. So, yeah, just how much how much it made me grow, how much um, I had to realize my own vulnerabilities, my own reactions was the, was the most meaningful thing I've ever done in my life. And it's the thing I'm most proud of for sure. Natasha, I thought this interview with Patty was very interesting because not a lot of times you get to hear both sides of a relationship with a kid in the foster care system. We got to hear from the mother and we got to hear from the kid. We interviewed Maddie a couple episodes ago. Now we're interviewing Patty. And I think coming together and seeing their relationship and how they both had to be vulnerable and how that blossomed into the relationship they they had because they truly did have to go through a lot of ups and downs. Right, Rachel. And hearing the struggles that they both had in their relationships, you know, they both talked about how even into Maddie's 20s, there was that struggle was really encouraging to me, you know, having a foster teen in my own home. And I see too in my foster parenting how vulnerability really leads to a lot of healing that there's just kind of no other way for that healing to happen. In a lot of foster parenting training, you hear that the only way for certain things to heal is in relationship. And in order to have those close relationships, you really do need to have vulnerability. I think being a foster parent and striving to be better each day will really help break the cycle of generational trauma. Absolutely. And that goes back really to the goal of this podcast, which is opening our eyes up to how we can improve ourselves so that we can all work together to give foster kids a better tomorrow. 
Yes. So visit our website, justaspecial.com, to see photos of Maddie and Patty and to share this episode with a friend or family member. That's a wrap. Thank you to our special guest, Patty Swope. You can learn more about Patty on her website at pattyswope.com. This podcast is produced by House of Pod and made possible by generous support from Amped. This season of Just a Special is brought to you by Kids Crossing, a private foster care agency created by foster parents for foster parents. So Rachel, I say that arguably the most important decision to make when becoming a foster parent is choosing what agency you're going to go through. And why is that, Natasha? As a foster parent, you really have to rely on your foster care agency for support. My partner and I chose Kids Crossing, and we really have no regrets. What are some of those services that you and your partner used? Well, Kids Crossing provides many no-cost services, including therapy services for the kids, family therapy, family preservation services, foster parent support groups, trauma-informed parenting trainings, and much more. Kids Crossing even gave my partner and I a parenting coach, which was super helpful as we don't have any kids of our own. And where can people go to become a licensed foster parent through Kids Crossing? Kids Crossing has four locations across Colorado in Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more at kidscrossing.com and tell them just a special sent you. This episode is supported by Christina Whiteley, realtor with Fabulous Homes Colorado, powered by Keller Williams Freedom. So Rachel, I can tell you from personal experience that home buying can be really stressful and you really want to make sure you're in the right hands. Tell me about Fabulous Homes Colorado, Natasha. So Fabulous Homes Colorado offers no-pressure home buying, and they also specialize in serving veterans and first-time home buyers in El Paso County, Woodland Park, and Pueblo in beautiful Colorado. And they also offer video tours so you can buy remotely. So if you want a realtor that truly values relationships over transactions, give Christina a call at 719-310-4347 and tell her that Just a Special sent you. You can learn more about Christina and Fabulous Homes Colorado on our website, justaspecial.com. Each office is independently owned and operated.